Hey everybody, welcome to Bikes and Big Ideas, our new show on the Blister Podcast Network, where we'll be bringing you some of the most interesting conversations and stories from across the bike world, while also on occasion going beyond bikes per se, to look at some of the biggest ideas and game-changing innovations that may help us take better care of this planet that we all call home. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Bikes and Big Ideas is presented by CBG Trails. The CBG Trails app is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. For our inaugural episode, we thought it would make sense to talk to and catch up with my Bikes and Big Ideas co-host, Claudio Calori. Many of you know Claudio from his POV course previews of World Cup DH tracks, which are still pretty much my favorite thing on the internet, or for his commentary work on the World Cup circuit. But Claudio is certainly up to a whole lot more than that these days, and so this conversation was a chance to get caught up on all that he is currently working on, talk a bit more about how this Spikes and Big Ideas podcast came to be in the first place, and we also delve into his own background a bit before talking about, of course, some big ideas and some thoughts about the future where we might be heading and where maybe we should be heading. So here it is, episode number one with my Bikes and Big Ideas co-host, Claudio Calori. Claudio, how are you? Uh, Extremely well, extremely (laughs) excited, extremely uh, not sleeping. (laughs) (laughs) I have a little bit of sense of how little sleep you're getting these days. So to hear you say first that you're extremely well and extremely excited, that's a wonderful quality in a person. I should also ask follow-up, where are you today? Well, exceptionally, I am at home. Uh Uh-huh. Had my son with me today, so that's good, but then brought him home to his mother and then back into emails and phone calls. And let's see, you've you've been home for not that long, right? I mean, you just got back from... uh from a World Cup race? Yeah, last week was World Cup in Maribor, which was uh, a new experience for me without the, without the Scott Velo Solutions team. But I quite liked it, to be honest. A little Was it a little less crazy with maybe a little less to do this time around? Yeah, well, I didn't have to do too much with the team because it was organized quite well. I had people taking care of the different things. But still, you know, not having to to worry about it and just being able to talk to people, um, not having in the back of my mind that I still need to make sure that the team has food in the evening and stuff like that. Um, it was, it, I didn't expect it to be a cool experience. I thought I would be, it would be more weird, but actually it was, it was a pretty good experience. Since I since I've got you here, I should ask. I mean, did you have any kind of primary takeaways from the racing itself that you witnessed? Well, obviously, Loic with the win on a brand new bike—that's quite an achievement, you know. Well, uh, there were other other people on brand new bikes as well, but uh, still, coming to the first World Cup of the season on a brand new bike—that's kind of unproven—and then winning it is always something special and Aaron Gwynn has done it in the past. Now Loic has done it and uh, well, that was pretty cool. 
Well, we've got a lot of ground to cover, and it is a goal of mine to uh, not contribute too much to your sleep deprivation here. But um, I figured this is kind of episode one of this new podcast that that uh, you and I had talked about a while ago. So I wanted to use this time mostly to, for those who might not know, just run through some of your background a bit, and then some of the things that you're currently working on. Right before I do that, though, I will say just a word of how this this new Bikes and Big Ideas podcast came to be, and it's a 100% true story, right? It, it started when you and I had a conversation on our a different podcast we do called the Blister Podcast. You and I talked, and it was, I believe, the, near the end of October in 2017, and People can go listen to this right now. I think we had a good conversation. And then right around the 38-minute mark, I think I asked you, I said, what's the best question I haven't asked you? And you responded with, what's the meaning of life? (laughs) (laughs) And, And then from there, the whole conversation takes this turn and just we open things up. And the next thing I know... We're talking about Elon Musk and clean energy and sustainable design, and it was totally unexpected, and it was super interesting. And again, I encourage people to listen. It's kind of the last 15 or 20 minutes. I think it's episode number 58 of the Blister Podcast, and we'll put links to it in the show notes on the website of this conversation. But um, truly, I got off from that uh, conversation. And I just was like, why, why don't we have more conversations like this in kind of the landscape of bike media? You know, it, it, it does feel like we spend a whole lot of time talking about new gear or world cup racers. And that stuff is great. And I love that stuff, but it just seemed like the more I thought about it, it was like, I think there's an opportunity here Um, to do something really interesting in the space where, you know, we have this global community of people who are passionate about riding. But I think you and I both know a lot of smart people who are also passionate about a lot of other big world issues and topics and ideas. I was like, I think we should combine these things. And I remember emailing you and saying like, hey man, we need to talk. <laughs> and it was, I remember it was very gracious of you because I think we actually talked on Christmas Eve and you were like with family. And we ended up having about a, I don't know, hour and a half, two hour conversation. I was in the States, you were in Switzerland at home. And um, I was like, hey, this really, our last conversation prompted all these ideas. And I was like, what about doing this new thing where yeah, we talked about bikes and we kind of kept this tethered to the to the bike world, but man, we just we also went go, you know, would throw things far far and wide in terms of just bigger issues in the world. And uh I remember you basically just saying like that sounds really interesting. <laughs> and um so I think that's that's kind of the backstory as I remember it. I'm not sure if if you have different recollections of how this went down. Yeah, you're right. And you know, just like you were surprised that a downhiller actually does have <laughs> these thoughts that that's kind of the general thinking of most people, you know, like downhiller must be a motorhead must not be worrying about uh, environment or must not be worrying about anything at all. 
And so when, when people then find out, well, okay, he cares about more than just being the fastest down the hill, then it's kind of not fitting their, their way they see the world. So I think there, at least I hope that even in the downhill World Cup world, there, there are more people thinking a little further than just what tire they're going to put on their bike for the next run. Um, and I think doing this podcast, we'll find out. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And um, you and I definitely are not experts in all of the topics that we may be exploring on this thing. But I, I, the, the, the intention here is that we certainly are going to be talking to some people who are experts in these areas. And again, the more that I thought about this after the conversation I had with you back in the fall of 2017, the more I just thought, like, I want to listen to that podcast. Like, I, I don't really have the, the place I go to right now that is just putting these interesting ideas in technology and new forms of sustainable practice. I, I don't currently have that thing. And I'm like, well, what if we just kind of made it? Yeah, I was actually wondering why you choose me to talk about it, because, yes, I do have a lot of ideas. I do have a lot of opinions but I don't have a lot of solutions because I'm simply not the expert in in that field. But, uh, you know, maybe we can trigger something here that lets the people talk, even from the, the mountain bike business. I know that in the mountain bike industry, a lot of people are working on big ideas, but a lot of people don't seem to want to talk about it because, you know, they don't want to brag about it. Or, and it's probably more noble or seen more noble to just do it without talking about it. But I believe if we do talk about it, maybe, maybe one has an idea that the other one can use. And so maybe if, if that idea appears here on the podcast, someone else hears it and and says, oh, wait, wait, that's exactly what I was waiting for as a solution for my, for my idea. And I'm always pretty much openly talking about my ideas that I have, whether they're realistic or they're complete nonsense. But I talk about them. And sometimes the, the person that hears that idea is, is like, oh, well, you know, I know somebody who has just developed this last month. So... If you want to make use of, of that, then uh, there you go. And somehow we need to, to give people access to these ideas and developments. And I, I think back to your question of like, you know, why did I reach out to you about this? I mean, in that podcast conversation, I think people can hear a bit about this. And then in some subsequent back and forth that you and I had, you were talking about engineers that you knew in Australia working on certain projects and a we talked quite a bit about a sustainable developer in Japan that you knew and maybe were working with at the time and again I think the point our our role here is not to be the experts on these things our role is to be looking and 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 exploring and paying attention to who out there is doing what and I hope this becomes a thing where our audience starts hitting me up. I won't say they shouldn't hit you up. You've got enough. Your your inbox is full enough. But um, you know, if if they're hitting us up and letting us know about some things maybe that aren't aren't currently on our radar, 
that again, this just becomes a place where for smart people who maybe happen to be passionate about riding, that this is a place where they get to hear a bit about the bike world and, and things going on there, but we'll try to do our best to be putting in front of them just interesting developments and people that, I don't know, any concerned person in the world ought to just be up on. I think that's kind of my idea for this. Sounds good. <laughs> um, <laughs> to that end, then, I want to kind of use this first conversation just so it's here and present and for people who maybe don't know everything there is to know about Claudio, I want to talk and dig in a bit on your background. And so we'll start with some fairly simple questions. Where did you grow up? In Zurich, which in Switzerland I should not even say because people that are not from Zurich don't like people who are from Zurich. But I now, I now live up in the mountains, so... I'm, I'm not from Zurich anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Can you be not from a place anymore? I think you kind of are from a place and that just sticks. No, no, no. I'm definitely from the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And um, you are, let's see, you've been in your current, your current spot is where? Uh, that's uh ski area called Larks, Flims, Flims and Larks is like uh, two towns or there's even a third one in there joining together to be one big ski resort. And uh, I live up in that one, and it's incredibly cool. Actually, it's May today, and it's snowing, which is not so cool because I'd rather <laughs> be riding bikes right now than skiing or snowboarding. <laughs> it, is, it is a big goal of mine to come come visit you sometime. Uh, I've never been to Switzerland. And as you've talked about this place you live, uh, it sounds pretty great. So someday. We have a guest room. <laughs> okay, perfect. So growing up in the town that shall not be named, I guess, uh, <laughs> what were you into as a kid? Were you, were, was it just about bikes from the, from the get-go or yeah, what were you into? Were you reading books, riding bikes? What? Books? What's a book? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, actually, I I did ride road with my father quite a lot, but also I played hockey, and hockey was the big thing when I was a when I was a kid. That was quite serious, meaning like training even before going to school at six in the morning and blah blah. So my parents at some point said, "Hey." Would you mind if we buy you a mountain bike? If then you'd have to go to hockey training on your own, so we don't have to drive you there every day. Um, and I'm like, yeah, cool, mountain bike, yeah. <laughs> um, and so then I did go to training with with the bike every day. But uh, at some point, I I just had more more fun on the bike than playing hockey, and that's when when the switch came. But I actually raced cross country for four years before I went to downhill. So, give me how old are you? You start racing cross country at what age ish? Sixteen, and downhill with nineteen. So nowadays, if you started racing downhill with nineteen, there would be no way you'd get to World Cup level anymore. How young is it common for people to get serious about DH racing? Well, depends on the background. I think. You know, a lot of the kids come from BMX, or they did back then, 
nowadays they don't necessarily come from BMX. Now they the guys start on mountain bikes straight away. Not all of them. That's a mix. But uh, I'd say you'd have to somehow start at twelve at the latest. Yeah. So it's probably too late for me. You're saying? No, no. You know everything's doable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's all in your head. It's all in your head. Okay. Cool. Well, I'll probably launch my my uh, professional DH career uh, probably sometime next week. Then. So thank you for that. Thank you for that nudge. Maybe maybe I should uh, consider a comeback as well. There, there you go. Uh, <laughs> two t- couple of guys, one with the two guys with head injuries, getting back into the the DH racing. I, mine was, I guess, more neck than head, but uh, maybe uh, you know, forget about those big ideas. Let's just go race again. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay. Let's see. So, I'm always curious when the intellectual light bulb turned on for somebody. Were you like a dumb dumb kid just playing hockey and riding bikes? Or were you in an environment where you actually started at a fairly young age thinking about the broader world? I think I did think about stuff already very, very early. Um, and even as a kid, already had some ideas and solutions that currently are coming to life. So the the electric car that's uh, that has an autopilot i mean i had that idea as a young kid obviously many people would say that um, and obviously many people have thought about stuff like that but there is only one person who who actually then made it happen but generally spoken i did think about a lot of things but not in a scientific way so no i i was not a kid who would read books at all and i still really don't um <laughs> but that doesn't mean that you you can't think and so a school career in terms of formal education i mean you you started racing pretty young so i i don't know how you would have really had time to do too much of both well i have the Matura, I don't know how how you say that in English. It's uh it's the degree you need to go to university. So I could have gone to university at any time, but just never did. <laughs> yeah. You had other things going on. Yeah. And then your racing career, right? So we're gonna fast forward a little bit. You're 19, you start racing DH. Was that just a very head down, very focused time where you were simply focused on being as fast as you could possibly be on a bike or through that career and traveling and the rest, was this still a time where you found yourself, I don't know, thinking about bigger ideas? Yeah, I think that consciousness, that is something that uh, I've always had, the the consciousness of just... uh, environmental issues um that's what i mean when i said even when i was a kid i've i've already questioned why we're burning fuel and just let it out in the air like how can that not have an effect how can how can that be good um and you know that consciousness was always with me even though as you say as a as a racer you somehow have to 
have to focus on on what you're doing there but then still you know you could still think where can i have a little less negative impact so being a vegetarian for the last 23 years um, is definitely one of those points and I'm still still trying to improve you know it, it it only it's only been two years now since i've seriously started using trains instead of cars uh, and so on let me ask you about the vegetarianism part that's actually also something that you and i share in common but i'm curious to hear how how you came to that practice what informed that decision well, that was still when I was racing cross country back when I was like 18. I had some friends on the racing team there who were vegetarians. Um, I was already eating less and less meat anyway. And at some point I just realized, look, we have too much of everything. We're wasting so much of everything around us. Why? How is it necessary that we kill animals? Because, like, there's so much waste, and we really have everything we need. It, it's really not necessary to kill animals, because we can definitely survive easy and even healthier without killing. So I'm not saying that eating meat is clearly wrong, because it is natural, but the way we live on the on this planet it's just simply not necessary anymore and i'm not saying that for a person that lives out in wilderness and needs to go hunt an animal to survive so for him it's definitely natural and necessary but for us in the most developed countries who have too much of everything we can definitely get through it uh, without eating meat and through the same thoughts and 20 years later i have then thought well if i actually want to go all the way i need to become vegan and that took me quite a while to actually get to that point but now this year i actually made it i mean i remember when i became a vegetarian and it was i was terrified i was absolutely terrified and i thought you know, I'm a, a football player. If there wasn't meat, it wasn't a meal, that kind of an attitude. And um, I remember, though, when I I'd only committed to a 30-day experiment, that's it. I wasn't willing to uh, to do more than that. And I remember a couple weeks in, and I actually thought, this is not hard. And I still feel really good, and strength levels are not changing at all, and all the rest. You know, and I, I kind of do the, like, vegan at home and then if I'm out somewhere or on the, if I have to be on the road, I'll relax those things a little bit. But are you able to keep that kind of strict vegan diet? Do you have any tips or tricks? <laughs> um, yeah, you're right. The, at home, it's a lot easier than if, you, if you're on the road, especially if you're traveling to, to all, all kinds of countries where, where it's even hard to be a vegetarian. Uh, and it's simply impossible to be a vegan unless you're happy with just drinking water and, and eating a carrot, if, if you can get a carrot. But uh, yeah, so I'm a bit like you. I mean, if I'm in a country where 
there's really no way around eating something with a little milk in it or with a little egg in it, then I'm not going to starve for it. I'm still going to eat that non-vegan thing. But I'm I'm a, I'm 100% strict on the meat, just not 100% strict on on the vegan. <laughs> okay. But um yes, as you say, as a vegetarian, I never felt like I had any disadvantage. Um actually quite the opposite. I did feel a lot stronger being a vegetarian. Now, as a vegan, and not being a professional athlete anymore who would focus on training and recovering and eating the right things, I feel it is not that easy. Um, it is actually easy if I don't care how strong I am. And working in the office, it really doesn't matter how, how strong I am. Um, but as soon as I go build a pump track and I need to push up 100 kilo or 200 pound um, compactor plates up the turn. That's where I need to be strong. So I I did a, a pretty extreme test on our last build in in South Africa, where I just went in and went 100% strict vegan, which at, on some days, well, I took it to the extreme. I don't know why, but I somehow got in the mood to just to just try it out, how little can I eat and and still function? So for the for the raw shape of the of the track, it it worked well. I pretty much got it down to almost an avo avocado a day. <laughs> wow, uh, not quite. The uh, in the evening, I still had a proper a proper meal in the evening, but uh, you know I. I managed to go to work without breakfast and maybe have an avocado for lunch and keep going till the evening and then just refill in the evening. And I'm not saying that this is, is some sort of good idea or so. It was just a test. It was just to like figure out what is possible and when will I get weak and will I, will I ever get weak? But then I definitely noticed it when we went into the asphalt phase. I was struggling big time. And uh, yeah, that's where I thought, okay, well, if I wanted to, to go full vegan anywhere in the world, I would then have to put more time and effort into actually, you know, um, finding all the nutrition that I would need to perform, um, which is totally possible. It's just a matter of how much time and effort you put in it. So if you want, it, if you want to be a, a full-on athlete as a vegan, that is totally feasible. That's absolutely no problem, but you will have to, to think about it properly and make sure you, you have everything you need. While while as a normal person who is not competing on a world level and who does not necessarily need to to be fully strong every day and at its absolute max a person like that can easily get along uh, along as a vegan without even having to worry too much first of all i'm i don't 
really imagine myself doing the one avocado a day experiment, except as you and I talked about before we started recording, there are just so many days now that get so busy that they're sometimes you're skipping meals kind of by necessity. And I will get to 6 or 7 p.m. sometimes, and it's like I've had two or three cups of coffee and an avocado, literally exactly that. Same here, and then you can brag about it. Hey, I got, I got through the day with just one, <laughs> one avocado. Yeah, but, <laughs> but I think what I like is, you know, again, I was just was a happy meat eater, was going to school in Chicago, and never really thought at all about this issue of to eat meat or not. And, you know, I, I actually read, it was for me reading Thoreau's book, Walden. And Thoreau makes a couple of comments. It's not much, but he makes a couple of comments where one kind of an aside, he's like, yeah, I think someday uh, I envision that the, the whole world will be, go vegetarian basically. And I was like, that's weird. Okay, whatever. And I kind of just filed it away, moved on. Then I read Gandhi's incredible autobiography with an excellent subtitle, The Story of My Experiments with Truth. And it was really Gandhi. And it's like, man, I just read these two books kind of at random. And, you know, Gandhi was a vegan and had certain religious motivations for that dietary practice that I certainly don't hold. Um, but it was just, it put that issue in on my radar for really the first time. And, and what I love about that Gandhi autobiography, this notion of these experiments with truth, he really introduced for me this notion or the idea of the 30-day experiment. And I think that's really interesting, right? Rather than just falling into these ruts of life where we just do the same thing over and over, there is a real interesting creative exercise and ethical exercise where it's like, well, let's just try that. You know, so whether it's you thinking about, I don't know, let's see how little food I can consume in a day and still kind of be okay and function well, or some of these different dietary practices, that, that concept of, you know, you're allowed to start something and see how it fits and not make this a lifelong commitment at day one. Yeah, exactly. I don't know why, but that was kind of the first time that concept of a practice of like, hey, experiment, try stuff out. That's what kind of turned it on for me. And I was like, damn you, Gandhi. Okay, I guess I'll give this a whirl, but I'm real scared right now. And by the way, one other thing I want to say is lest anybody, I won't speak for you. I have no interest in sort of being like, yeah, so everybody needs to be a vegetarian or a vegan or screw you or you're doing it wrong. I think the thing that I've really learned in life is like everybody, everybody is at a different, at a different place in time and at a different stage of thinking about these things, I'm far less... Missionary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't care to be evangelical about this stuff. I think it's far less important about where you are or where any of us are at this exact point in time. I think it's more important, are we actually thinking through these issues, right? So I, th I think we are all obligated to think about these different things, but where we are at a given point in time, I don't, you know, I'm further ahead than some people in certain practices maybe, and I'm way behind a bunch of other people in probably more important things, right? And so I think this whole judgmental thing where it's like, hey, if you're not exactly where I am right now, like I have no time for that. 
and just think that's a shitty way to be. Well, you know, everything, everything can be questioned and everything can be justified. So it just depends how, how you look at it and where you're coming from. This is also, even though I'm trying hard to be a, a very consequent vegan, but at the same time, I do see that it's, it's, uh, in, some, in some situations, it doesn't even make sense. Um, so let's say if you're up in Alaska, you, you probably have a bigger impact, a bigger negative impact if you're trying to be a vegan than if you just eat fish. Because fish is what they have and vegetable is in some times of the year not what they naturally have. So if you, well, maybe I'm talking nonsense because I've never been to Alaska, but that, so I'm just using that uh, as an example. Um, if you're trying to, to grow vegetable in a place that, that just doesn't want to grow vegetable, or if you have to ship it around the world for you to eat vegetable in a place where there is none, then that is probably the bigger carbon footprint than if you just eat the fish that you get out of the sea right there. Um, so that's where I know that veganism doesn't make sense in every situation. I would say in the, in the majority of the situations, it does make sense and it does lower the carbon footprint of people, but not in every situation. And then you know, you can go further. Let's use the example of the avocado. I mean, it's a super trendy food at the moment. The whole world loves avocado. But now think of it, the avocados that we buy in Switzerland mainly come from South America. So think about what the carbon footprint of that avocado is and what does it do to the country where it's produced, if that country suddenly has to produce 10 times more avocados only because Europe loves them so much. So that means rainforest might be cut down to have more space to grow avocado and water is going to be used to, to grow those avocados um, and so on. So if you if you are a vegan because of envir environmental issues, then you have to think further. Because if you replace your food with fancy food from South America, you're not doing any good for, for the planet. You'd have to kind of figure out how to be a vegan with, your, with the stuff that grows in your own country. And then you're actually doing something for your planet. But not if you replace your food by by stuff from the other side of the world sometimes we like everything to be incredibly black and white and sometimes it just isn't exactly <laughs> so unfortunately the hard work of thinking we kind of never should just be free of that hard work so let's get back to some bike talk we, t we talked about this a little bit. If, if somebody wants to go back and listen to our conversation in October of 2017, but talk to me a little bit about Velo Solutions. Um, when it started, why it started, and where things are today. 
Well, it, possibly it started in 99 when I was, uh, that was in the early days of my racing career. I was training in San Diego and uh, a friend of mine and I thought we should, we should have a proper downhill training track, which we then built and it became quite a success. So people from all over California um, came to train on that track. And since a lot of racing teams back then were based in California, uh, that meant that those racing teams came down there as well. And that meant that people from all over the world uh, used the track. So that was quite a success. And then uh, five years later in two, five, 2004, two friends of mine came up to me and asked me, hey, should we start start up our own trail building company, uh, which was then going to be Vela Solutions. Um, thing was, in the first couple of years, they expected me to quit racing, which I didn't. I was still full on racing in the World Cup. And so they said, well, we don't want to do this alone. We're going to quit. Um, so I was there with a company that was pretty much ready to go as soon as as I quit racing. And um, so then in 2009 was when uh, the pump track thing kind of came up. Um, and in 2012, we then built the first asphalt pump track. And from there on, things just went absolutely crazy. And they're, they're getting crazier day by day. <laughs> yeah. It is wild. And I guess I still, I'm going to ask the real basic or dumb question. Why pump tracks? How did this get to be seemingly such a thing? Um, to be honest, I did not have a plan for that. It's just that it all just developed, you know, and the, the pump tracks, the way we build them, they appeal to pro racers, but they also appeal to to kids and beginners. And um, since we built them from, from asphalt, which by the way is also a topic we should then discuss with the bigger ideas. Um, but that meant that cities now can, can buy them and install them or like get them in, get them built by us, but then have something that is sustainable, something they don't need to maintain every day. And, you know, up until that point, uh, pump tracks were made from from dirt, and that meant a city could not really get one for their city park because that would also mean they would have to employ two people taking care of it. Um, now, with with the asphalt on it, it was suddenly an infrastructure like a skate park, for example, where a city could actually buy it and then just have it there and people can use it uh, without the city having to to maintain it every day or every week, whatever. So it is really something that everyone can use, the, the kid, the beginner, the expert, and even the pro. And it's that one and the same track everybody gets together and it's not limited to both to mountain bikes either it's bmx skateboards scooters inline skates whatever 
And the funny thing is that people get along on it. It's there's not that sort of I don't know if I should call it fight, but there's definitely some issues sometimes in skate parks between skaters and BMXers and mountain bikers um, where they're in each other's way. But on a pump track, people just get along. Um, they just use it together. They respect each other and they all love it. And so um, we never had an issue with a skater. And funny enough, I even started skating now too because um, – yeah, like some skaters use my bike and do a couple of laps and I use their skateboard <laughs> and do a couple of laps. So it's a really cool thing. I don't know. I cannot explain why, but pump tracks just bring people together and and that's why they're such, an, uh, such a success. Maybe this is, you've, you've probably um, heard of that study that says, I think Thomas Friedman maybe is, I don't know if this is, if he's uh, responsible for popularizing this, but this notion that countries that have a McDonald's in them don't go to war with each other. May maybe pump tracks is the next thing. Like if we, you know, if we're interested in world peace, we just need to drop pump tracks in as many communities as possible and you will just have ended war. Why do, why do you think we created pump for peace? <laughs> Okay, you're you're way ahead of me. <laughs> we'll get to we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so, is it is it fair enough then to you know you've you've mentioned skate parks when you're talking to city planners or whomever you're talking to? We see skate parks in a lot of places, and I always think they're so cool, even though I don't skate. Pump tracks is just do you is that how you talk about these with city planners or whatever? It's like yeah, you know, you have that skate park over there. This is a bit like this but we can get people on bikes and on skateboards and the rest. Has that proven to be a good analogy or, or where, what are the biggest differences or similarities? As you say, as similar to you, I, I love skate parks. I lo love how they look and I do love the, the skateboard scene, but they have a bit of an image problem in some countries. So if you go to the city and you talk about skaters, they're like, oh, whoa, whoa, no, that's troubles. That's, uh, that's uh, weed smokers and all of that. We don't want that in our city. So I have to be very careful, even though I want the skaters to use our pump tracks and they're more than welcome. And I mean, some of our pump tracks are used more by skaters than by mountain bikers. And I do love the fact that our pump tracks are are used by everybody but sometimes i have to be rather quiet about the fact that our pump tracks are also going to attract skaters because some neighborhoods do not like them <laughs> and again that is not what i think of skaters that is just in some some cities people have a bit of a I don't know the English word for that one. Bias? Yeah, exactly. So, and this is just, as you kind of hinted at at least a bit, I mean, this, you guys are building more and more tracks. How, how many tracks do you currently have out there in the world? 170. Wow. We're somewhere around 170. You seem to be building these in not all of the 
most obvious places, right? Talk to me about some of the countries. Well, Europe and America are, or North America are the biggest markets, but um, China is taking off right now uh, like crazy. But yes, we do also have tracks in countries like India, Indonesia, Thailand, South Africa, and, and even Lesotho. That's where we get to, to pump for peace. Okay. So um, after building that first track in Thailand, you know, the experience there, that was, that was quite something special because we had that client who got us over to, to Thailand to build that track for a quite wealthy client. We were building it right in front of, of shanties with um, kids there who had almost nothing. And so while we were building that track, um, I was quite often thinking, like, how much sense does this really make? Like, who are we building this track for? Is, is it just for a couple of privileged people here? Or are these kids living next to the track here? Will they be able to use it? Do they even have bikes? Um, but that question was answered when, a couple of minutes after laying the last wheelbarrow of asphalt. When those kids came out with whatever they had, you know, like bikes without pedals, just really, really old junk bikes but and they didn't even have shoes so the kids were actually standing bare feet on axles because the pedals weren't on that bike anymore it was just the bare axles and these kids didn't stop riding they just kept doing laps and laps and laps and laps and so i asked the client hey are you gonna keep this open to everybody are these kids gonna be allowed on it and he said yes that's the idea that just made us think, you know, if in a place like this, we have that same effect of our pump tracks that it has in Switzerland or in New York City or anywhere. The idea was then to create our initiative called Pump for Peace, which then aims to bring those pump tracks to underprivileged areas. And uh, the first project of, of that was in Lesotho, which is a little country in South Africa and the story there is two years ago we've built that track one year later we brought the Red Bull Pump Track World Championship there uh, with a qualifier um, obviously the South African riders came into Lesotho as well and they took the win um, but this year we had another qualifier there on that track in Lesotho and the crazy story is that by now the riders have gotten so fast that they took the win. And believe it or not, we're going to fly in one of these kids to, to the final at the end of this season. <laughs> Pump for peace then. How, how is this being funded? Are you looking for corporate partners? Or is this something that's, that people can donate to? Well, you know, Pump for Peace is, has a very, very simple goal. It's bringing pump tracks to underprivileged areas. And to do so, we, uh, we, we have all kinds of 
ways how to get there. So the first one in Lesotho was fully funded by Velo Solutions. Um, but for for the future, to our goal is to make that happen as many times as possible, um, which means it cannot it cannot always be fully funded by Velo Solutions because we have limited resources. So that means we are open to all sorts of partnerships and we do benefit concerts. We are actually dreaming of having some big big bands playing and the profits of those concerts would then go into Pump for Peace, which would mean more, more pump tracks in, in underprivileged countries. Um, but there's all sorts of things we do. Like, for example, I, ha I still have a ton of of parts from my old racing team that we that we quit last last year so there's still some parts from there we're selling them and all all the money that comes in from selling those parts goes straight to straight to pump for peace then uh, next weekend for example we have an auction on a swiss auction platform called ricardo there's Yolanda Neff's Trek bike is on auction and the proceeds from that auction goes straight to Pump for Peace as well. So, and as you mentioned, we're totally open to corporate sponsorships where if a company says, well, in this country, we really want to be involved. There's there's all sorts of ways. We, we don't want to make ourselves too many rules because there is, as I said at the beginning, one simple goal is bringing as many pump tracks to uh, underprivileged areas as possible. You mentioned a little bit earlier that you, in addition to getting these pump tracks put up in a lot of these different places, that in some of these places you were also working on trying to supply bikes uh, for people to use at these tracks. Can you say anything further about that? Well, we are working on a on a partnership with with a bike brand who who are very very in in the same thoughts and in the same line with us there, and uh, we just we need to figure out details on how we bring those bikes to those uh, to those kids. Obviously, it it makes no sense to just send the bikes to to Africa and then not having any control uh, about them because they might just disappear. So uh, we need some, so, some sort of organization at, at those tracks, which we do for the first three. So um, these organizations will then hand out the bikes to those kids. Um, and the, the important thing, if you do stuff like that, is that you you don't just give them out and uh, for nothing. Uh, the kids need to learn that nothing is for free in life. So uh, what they do in Lesotho, for example, is that those kids who don't have a bike and they also have no money, they can still get the bikes and ride as long as they want. But in return, they have to help with something. They have to clean the track remove trash from the track or maybe repair little things on site or wash the bikes from the bike shop or whatever. And so, so the kids 
love it actually they when i got there last time they took my bike away from me and went to wash it only so they could could ride it afterwards <laughs> it, it was pretty cool i want to ask you too about this you're sponsoring this team the the isambali south african team yeah actually that uh is quite a funny story because you know we've We've quit the Scott Veller Solutions World Cup racing team last last year, and only short after that, our client from Durban, which is uh, the Go Go Durban Cycle Academy, they asked me if I was interested in sponsoring their racing team, and I said, "Yeah, well." let me hear about it what what what's it all about and so they said well the racing team gives uh kids from from the township uh the township of quadebeca actually it gives them the chance to to race on a regional and national level and that would be a cool opportunity for Vela solutions to to stay um in in racing and so i think i said okay well let's do it and then they sent me the proposal of how it's going to look and everything and i see that the other title sponsor of the team was a meat brand and i'm <laughs> like I, I, <laughs> I called them and said hey dude there's no way i will put villa solutions next to a meat brand forget about that i'd rather pay double and be the only the only title sponsor of that team, but I cannot put Villa Solutions name next to a meat brand. And uh, so they they went silent for a bit. And then they came back and said, okay, well, we have another idea for you. Why don't you just take the girls team? And so they actually create, before it was a mixed team, it was uh, guys and girls, but uh, then, because of, of this little story, they created the girls-only team. And, well, it's actually, I'm happy about every Instagram post they do. They've just done a little downhill race. Actually, the South African Nationals today. Um, and, yeah, I think it's a big impact. It's uh, the first black girls racing team in south africa and the the girls are are quite successful it's and it's it's so cool seeing them on the podium and not only on the podium it's just cool seeing them ride anyway and so how long has the how long has vela solutions been a sponsor of the isambali team well that only just started so this is the first year yeah we started it in december and uh, oh wow yeah it's brand new. So onward and upward. Yeah. Where does the Red Bull Pump Track World Championships fit into all of this? Well, the Red Bull Pump Track World Championship just is the the extension of all of these. You know, Vela Solutions builds tracks around the world. It wants to bring pump tracks into underprivileged areas. And the World Championship we created has that exact same goal because we're not just doing races in the metropoles or in the most richest cities. 
we are going to India, we are going to Lesotho, we are taking the Pump Track World Championship into every poor country. That is a total must. That is the basic of our world championship. And so we want everyone to have access to it. And so that's why the concept is one qualifier in every country where we have a track. So in this year, we're around 25 qualifiers in 25 different countries. Um, and then the four fastest ones from each country um, are qualified for the final at the end of the year. And the winner of each country actually gets a paid ticket, a paid trip to the final. So that means if a, if a kid from India or, as mentioned before, a kid from Lesotho wins the qualifier in his hometown, he gets a paid trip to, to the final at the end of the season. So if you, if you only look at it from a, from a financial point of view, then possibly taking a qualifier to Lesotho is, is not the most sensible thing. But when you look at it from a Pump for Peace perspective, that is our most important stop ever. When and where are the finals this year? We are still in, <laughs> in, in big negotiations with some big cities. I hope to be able to announce that in the next two weeks. Okay. Uh, when it's going to be October or November, but uh, where is undefined yet. We'll stay tuned. Yeah. So we've probably already touched on some of the answers to this next question, but given the title of this podcast, I want to ask you what big ideas are you thinking about most these days? And these might be terrible ideas or crazy ideas or whatever, but I'm curious just what is it that you find yourself kind of preoccupied with these days? It's probably, well, <laughs> that's tough to say because it's about a million in <laughs> every hour. <laughs> and yes, currently I am kind of trying to, to find a way to still think of big ideas while, while handling the daily, the daily challenges. And that's why, you know, currently I, I don't always have as much time to think about those ideas I've already mentioned at our last podcast with, you know, uh, developing a surface for, for a pump track that would replace our asphalt uh, surface that would be durable, sustainable, and green. That is something I would love to, to move forward on, but it's just um, that is something where I'm hoping that some person who listens to this has an idea on how we could do it. Because I'm thinking, you know, like, what if we had a surface that produces solar energy? Then, then suddenly every pump track that we build becomes, becomes a power plant. 
I'm also wondering why is there no Elon Musk for construction machinery? Why are our excavators still still running on diesel where where an excavator needs to be heavy anyway so we could put two tons of batteries in there and it would be all cool no problem at all so why is that not developed yet i've actually contacted several companies that produce uh construction machineries uh machinery but it hasn't gone further obviously i cannot spend 12 hours a day focusing on that topic because we we do have to make sure we build all those pump tracks <laughs> but maybe by talking to enough people at some point someone will make it happen and or make it happen together with us we're completely keen to to help as much as we can and use our constructions as a test field for for stuff like that well, that is all good stuff. And Claudio, I'm I'm very happy after what seems like a very long time between us first talking about this and and this conversation today. I'm I'm very excited to get this underway, and uh, I do think this is going to be a great opportunity for us to exchange some maybe ideas that are way out there. Maybe there are some ideas or suggestions that are that people can go execute, you know, tomorrow. But I think it's going to be fun to see suggestions and ideas and topics come in here. And I think we're going to get to talk to a lot of very interesting people thinking about some pretty big things uh, along the way. So I'm excited about all of that. And, and it's great to reconnect with you and, and to get caught up on all these things that are keeping you quite busy these days. Um, it sounds like a lot of really good stuff. So thanks. I appreciate that time. Oh, thank you. Well, that's it for episode number one of Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks to Claudio for the conversation. And you can follow the hashtag Pump for Peace on social to keep tabs on that project. If you like this inaugural episode of Bikes and Big Ideas, be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts to catch all the new episodes right when they come out. And thanks also to Luke Alley for producing this episode. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again next week.